All right, you guys hear it all the time. The typical, if you like this episode, please rate us, subscribe to us, leave a comment on iTunes or Spotify or wherever. Well, it really does make a difference for this podcast. We're small, we're trying to get bigger, and all of this feeds the algorithm so that iTunes or Spotify or Pandora, wherever you find us at, will rate us higher and higher with the more likes and comments that you guys leave. And always, if you guys find value in these episodes, please leave us a comment on the episode or on the show uh, page. And the best way to help us is to share it off. So again, thank you. And we will talk to you soon. On this episode of After the Battle of Campfire, I talk with my good buddy, Ron Radsky. It's been a while since I've talked to him. And I learned a lot. I didn't know that he was in Desert Storm. But I met Ron when I was at Bamsey. He was like one of the first three people I met when I got medevac there. He helped me navigate the course of all the Wounded Warrior stuff. He went on to go to Bethesda and continue helping wounded veterans. We talk he suffered from COVID and we get into that a little bit. He's also unique because he's also the spouse of a military officer. Not to say that's a bad thing, but it did affect his career a little bit. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of After the Battle Campfire. All right. All right. I'm back with my good friend, Ron Radsky, who I met uh, you were one of the first people I met at Bamsey, weren't you? I think so. Uh, way back 2007, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. So long ago. So Ron is a retired now, right? Retired uh, senior chief from the Navy. Senior chief hospital corpsman. So Ron, let's start in the beginning because you don't seem like you have a Texas accent. I do not. I am from Chicago. Um Ironically, my goal was to uh, join the Navy to get out of Chicago, and the Navy, in its great wisdom, sent me to Great Lakes for boot camp. <laughs> that's, actually, that's actually pretty funny. I grew up less about 100 miles away from uh, RTC San Diego, mm-hmm. and they sent me to Great Lakes. The addition, they sent me to core school, which at that time was actually at Great Lakes as well. Yep, and the, I ended up being stationed. My first uh, station, duty station, was at uh, actually Reserve Center at Forest Park, Illinois. Oh, wow. You didn't go anywhere. No. Yeah. Uh, not until Desert Shield, Desert Storm, which was uh, probably about eight months after getting on board over at uh, Forest Park. So let's go back to the beginning. You grew up in um, Illinois. So was it Chicago area, right? Correct. Uh, north side of Chicago, Niles. So growing up, did you have a military influence in your family? That kind of uh, no, it was just uh, I wanted to do something different. Wanted um, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. Uh, I applied to a whole bunch of colleges and got in. I think it was like seven. Oh wow! Colleges. And I had the grades. Um, Mom wouldn't sign though for active duty, so I was seventeen at the time. So I did the reserve thing. And uh, I tried to go ahead and enlist the Marine Corps first. And Marine Corps recruiter came out to my house and my father had um, a couple too many. (laughs) Oh, this is going to go somewhere, isn't it? Yeah. So uh, the Marine Corps uh, recruiter, the sergeant, my old man got into it. Um, 
which was a usual thing in my household. My dad usually had one too many, got into it with whoever happened to be there, but kind of soured me on the Marines. And then when I saw the Navy recruiter and they're like, hey, uh, world's your oyster. You got, a, you got a 98 on your ASVAB, no problem. Uh, you ever think about doing nuke or maybe uh, they were uh, one of those airplane techs, sonar techs or whatever? Oh yeah, yeah. The uh, you know, P3 yeah. thing. Yeah, the guys who rode in the uh, in the like the back seats up uh, the a- anti-submarine warfare technician. Yeah, AS- yeah. And they're like, hey, we got this ramp program, which is awesome. And then I took the uh, the numbers test uh, for uh, to prove whether or not you could actually see colors or not. That thing lies. Yeah, so color vision is red, green, colorblind. Uh, if you are that, something about red wires and green wires with nukes and electronics. They, they just don't want to go together. They don't want to no, trust you. They don't trust you with that. And they said, well, you could become a hospital corpsman or you could become a master at arms. And there was a gentleman there, the, uh, Matthew McAloon. Um so yeah, you can be a corpsman and serve with the Marines and it'd be awesome and cool and fun and stuff. So I'm like, oh, okay. And signed up for that program. So what was your, uh, like you said, your mom wasn't going to let you sign for active duty. So what, what was the conversation when you came home after MEPS and was like, hey, I'm going to be a corpsman and I uh, may go well, play with the Marines. Her whole point was she thought I had joined the Navy. And she did not know about the Marine portion of it. And it turns out I messed up in core school. And I thought the chief was actually looking out for me at the time. I was going through some rough times. My parents had divorced and whatnot. And my orders to um, field med got canceled um, halfway through core school. I was not a standout core school student. Uh, so what happens is I ended up going home, went through boot camp in July, uh, core school in September. And then I was literally back at my house, uh, after Christmas. So I was just going to ask, so what was the uh, trip like for you? I mean, what, what, Waukegan, which is where, uh, RTC Great Lakes is, is what half an hour, 45 minutes away from your home? Uh, about 45 minutes from my house, up the highway and whatnot. So how was that? being that close to home and it was weird um because part of the reason why i got in trouble at core school uh twofold incident um the rolling stones uh were going around a concert i think it was there i might be wrong on the the concert i think it was a steel wheels tour it was 88 and i always wanted to see the stones um never got a chance to see them in 84 when they came around uh, previously, or it was 82, I think. And I thought this is going to be the last opportunity to see them. So we didn't have Liberty that weekend. I head out with a bunch of friends up to Poplar. It was either Alpine Valley in Wisconsin to go see the stones and came back and it's Monday morning. And they announced that they had, we were going to do a year analysis. So I am surrounded by people that were completely stoned at this freaking concert. And I didn't know anything about the urinalysis. I was 17. I'm still 17. I don't know shit. So I'm like, uh, I'm in a panic because, oh my God, I'm going to get kicked out because I'm going to pop for pot. Because I thought you could get it from the contact high or whatever that would show up on the test. So like, hey, do you any, 
uh, given they gave me an opportunity to declare anything before you peed. Uh, do you do anything? Oh yeah, I was with a whole bunch of people that were smoking uh, this weekend, and then the chief liked the fact I admitted it, uh, but he thought I had indulged and asked somehow beat the test or something. Oh damn! So um, I was a goofy kid because um, I was in all these AP accelerated classes and stuff and AP bio. I basically slept through course school uh, for seven weeks. And it's about this time we had this year analysis and it's the seventh week. I saw some new material. So I crashed and burned on the test as well. So the chief thought I was having some issues. I came in there. I, Hey, my parents are getting divorced. I got this going on. And he actually did the right thing by me. I didn't think it was the right thing at the time. It's like, Hey, you should be home with your family and stuff. Cause my mom and my dad had a messy divorce and stuff. And I'm like, yeah, uh, I didn't partake or anything, and he didn't believe me. And hey, my father's got a drinking problem or whatever. And then um, he couldn't figure out why there's a stellar student, and all of a sudden I fell off about the seventh week or so. So he's like, okay. So he's convinced I was uh, picking up my dad's habits and I was a drinker. Uh, so he says, okay, we're going to let you stay in. We're going to switch you contract, though. So you're in the reserves but you're going to have to go through Naval Alcohol and Drug Safety Awareness Program, NADSAP, which is basically level one uh, alcohol and drug treatment. Was that the uh, inpatient or was that an outpatient thing? Outpatient program. Uh, it was still new. Um, it was weird. And I thought they thought I wouldn't show up for the training and then, hey, the problem child goes away type thing. But I started college because ended in January and they're like, Hey, it's two weeks. And the college said, uh, Loyola's like, go, you're serving your country. So I went to a two week outpatient program at uh, great lakes and I didn't care cause I was getting paid. Well, so you, Oh, so they got you, they, did they let you graduate core school then? I graduated from core school. Uh, then, but then I they also, had you do it. Then I had, uh, yeah, that was four months. It was actually in April. I was on orders for it. And then in addition to that, I had to meet with a uh, counselor and attend AA for a year afterwards to stay in, in the military. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, and it's ironic because the doctor I was seeing uh, was lecturing me on the evils of alcohol, which I was well aware of and stuff. But he himself was an alcoholic, which I did not know at the time. That's he crazy. Got, he, he got boarded out of the Navy for his, his drinking. Oh, so this was an active duty guy, uh, doctor. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, actually, no, he was a reserve doctor. Oh, okay. Okay. Physician. That, that's, that's just a crazy beginning. Um, I don't even know. Wow. That's, that's pretty damn intense. Just in the first, what, 16 weeks of your time in the Navy. Yeah, actually, uh, it's not even like, yeah. Shit, um, six, five, six months, not even. Yeah. Did you, um, so after that whole incident with core school, you start, you get demobbed. I'm assuming that at some point you're drilling too. Well, all yeah, drilling reservist. I'm over at, uh, Forest Park, Illinois. Uh, and it, I was expecting to join the Navy, see the world, blow shit up, do all, crazy commando type shit and stuff like that. And 
all they had us do on our weekends is we basically went to the VA and we took care of older uh, gentlemen. I was 17 and 18. I was stupid. People that actually needed our help in terms of nursing care and whatnot. But I'm 17 and 18. I want to be doing cool shit with the Marines. I don't want to be doing um, care for the aged and whatnot. Right, right. Which is actually kind of better than what I'm seeing with the reserves now where they're sitting in classrooms all day. Part of the, we had some classrooms, but they were able to coordinate with the VA, which was an excellent program. And it was uh, fantastic in terms of actually teaching his basic skills. I wish I would have been more mature about it. I wish I would have, having children and working in the medical field, I, if you have children first and you deal with all the messes and the stuff, before going in the medical field and having to deal with that, that's usually, I think that's a better transition or an easier transition and stuff. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, uh, I think it also depends on who your mentors were, uh, especially on the reserve side. Yeah. Pretty much my first enlistment, I didn't take a single advancement test because no one told me. I had no idea. Oh, that, that was always a surprise for me too, because tests were very easy. Um, I was a, uh, bag of shit sailor. So I would show up to drill, uh, cause it's an old government building we were in. It was 95 degrees and it was 20 degrees below zero outside Chicago, January, February, March, whatever. And I'd be there for 10 seconds and I'd fall asleep literally because <laughs> I was working the night shift over at Kmart during the week. Oh, wow. Okay. Somebody wake me up. I'd muster type thing and we go do our thing. After we work with the patients, I'd grab donuts, I'd grab subs, I'd grab pizza. I was the food guy and come back and bring back food and whatnot. Uh, the thing that saved my ass was I was kind of the Forrest Gump of the unit where I could run like, I wouldn't know it looking at me now, but I was much more skinnier. And I was the slowest guy on the track team at Maine East High School. But when I got to the Navy, you know, I was fast. Yeah, yeah. Na- the, the Navy boot camp isn't exactly the most athletic group of people or let me rephrase it maybe recruits now, now it may be different but definitely back when i was in people were pushing the limits for their uh, age category mile and a half so i was uh the mile and a half was an easy day for me so i was doing um close to eight i was doing 8 15 8 30 mile and a half across the finish line i turn around i jog back and help people run across the finish line and help them finished and then um was there for a year and a half and I was really spinning my wheels because there was uh I don't think he made I just made third class at the time so what was it like going through um the advancements back in in the 80s and early 90s because I remember showing up to the CBs and they gave me a BMR and a hospital corpsman yeah you got the you got the books yeah once you completed the books you were eligible to take the exam yeah, and, and then um, the exam actually, I found the uh, third class exam very easy, so I was able to pin the crow on. And then about the same time, this uh, CEO of the unit, who's actually a very good egg, I didn't think so at the time though, uh, called everybody and uh, wanted to talk to everybody about basically do a CDB or not a CDB, what um, like a counseling session. Hey, what do you? What do you think yeah, no, you are six months? Yeah, the, it, 
pretty much CB, a career development board yeah, yeah. T- type of thing. But it was the 06 in the unit doing it wasn't the chief. Oh, wow. So what happens was, is he's, hey, what do you want to do? And I, uniform's not scored away or whatever. He's like, oh, I, I don't know. And he's like, uh, do you think you might want to start with the Marines one day? Yeah, that, I guess so, sir. That'd be cool, I guess. And then, like, the way I remember it, it's like three weeks later in the mail, I get a letter in reference to your request to be transferred to Marine unit. And this is uh, 90. So are you still at home then? Or are you on? Yeah, your- I'm, I'm in college. I'm at home. And then what happens is, is um, I'm at Forest Park at the Reserve Center. And then I get transferred over to... Um, Foster Avenue, 2nd Battalion, 24th Marines, H&S Company. So, so where, where's where's that at? Sorry, uh, Wasser Avenue. Is that uh, in Fa- Chicago? Wasser Avenue is in Chicago. Okay. Okay. Um, so they, uh, I get there um, and I feel like a fish out of water. <laughs> I show up in the dress whites like I'm supposed to. Um, I actually took time on uniform. And everybody is in the old style BDUs and whatnot. So walking around the reserve center, this is um, August. And Ed Arns, who's the first class there, goes, hey, grab your shit, you're going to the field. And it's like, what? And then it's different with the Marines because you come in on a Thursday night or a Friday night. They do the field evolution. You come back on Sunday. You spend most of Sunday getting all the weapons cleaned and whatnot, and then they kick you loose to get out of there. So As they, opposed, go ahead. I was going to say, so they sent you out to your first Marine unit. Um, you didn't go to field med after core school. Right. So you show up Navy uniform uh, as expected and all right, boot, go hang grab, out in the, in the dirt. Grab, grab a unit one. What the, what the hell is a unit one? I don't have, I don't have camis. Well, here, shit. They just grabbed whatever was off the shelf or whatever. Now, everybody else had the BDU jacket. It was camouflage. I still had the nine, the jacket they gave me was the 1980s one that was still a solid green. Right. It's a transition in uniforms. I, I remember that, that jacket very well. So I'm like, I'm sticking out like a sore goddamn thumb, even being in the field. Uh, I don't know basic stuff like doing boot bands or anything like that, but I did do a bunch of camping when I was growing up as an Eagle Scout. So the camping portion, setting up the the tents and whatnot, not a big deal. It was just kind of a culture shock and stuff. So I cool. We're up at Fort McCoy, Wisconsin. I think we were uh, on the range and stuff. And Fort McCoy, Wisconsin is crazy because it will actually get winter like conditions actually as late as like April and stuff sometimes, or it's like blistering hot. There's no in between. That, that was my first and only AT with fourth LAR. Uh, when I reenlisted was up there, they were getting ready to push out a unit to Djibouti and we went and did some mortar training out there middle of nowhere. Wisconsin. Yeah. And then, um, that was my first experience. First year weekend show up in whites. I'm fr- and I'm used to, Getting out of there, it was like church on Sunday with the Navy side. Basically, if you're not leaving out of the parking lot at 345, something's wrong type thing. And this is like, so I get back. I'm like, yeah, I can get ready to go home. Long fucking weekend in the field and stuff. 
they're like, no, your uh, your weapon's not clean enough. Go back, and I must have went back about four or five times before I had the pistol and the rifle cleaned up enough to pass inspection. And by that time, it's actually about uh, 1,700. So I'm like, oh, this is complete bullshit. I get the uniform situation scored away. And then I'm supposed to go on my AT, and the orders are arranged by the hospital unit. So I end up going up to all of all places, Great Lakes. And it's like, shit, I'm just a year out of boot camp, and I'm up at the hospital there, and I'm up on the floor um, doing what quad zeros do, which is taking temperatures and blood pressures and shit like that. And then Saddam evades Kuwait. And I'm like, so you, so you heard about it while you were on AT? Uh, yeah, basically. And I'm like, okay. And then they're like, yeah, uh, there were rumors about everybody starting to ramp up and go over there and it's going to be a big deal. And I'm like, ah, there's no way. Yeah, this is bullshit. And come back to my unit. My mom's nervous, of course, because she knows I'm associated with Marine unit now. And I'm like, nothing to worry about. They never, before... 1990, they never activated the reserves for anything except World War II. Uh, not even in Korea, not even in Vietnam, unless you were in a specialized unit. So I'm like, right. there's nothing to worry about. And I was completely wrong about that. <laughs> so at what point in time did they send you to field med? Uh, after Desert Shield, there's a storm. So did you get mobilized for? Yeah, I did. Uh, we, um, the day before Thanksgiving, Get your ass down uh, to MEPS. We're going to pro- or get your ass down to the Reserve Center. So we go to Reserve Center, and I think we went to MEPS. Or no, we went to Great Lakes. And they gave us the active duty cards, switched our cards over for the pink ones, the green ones at the time. And then they told us, you're going to have Thanksgiving. Get your ass back over here on Friday. You belong to us now. So uh, go ahead take care of all that processing Friday. Then we went to, uh, out to Lejeune. We were in Lejeune for about a month. Uh, I don't think I could get busted for this. Uh, we were scheduled to leave right before, uh, New Year's to get in country. So I wasn't going to be there very long because Desert Shield didn't last that long. Yeah. Uh, but there was a whole bunch of hype about how, uh, it was like the end of the world, Nostradamus type shit. They were expecting bazillions of casualties or whatever. I'm like, fuck, I'm just 19 years old. So I tell um, my second class, look, we're not going to leave on Christmas. There's no fucking way. I'm going to take off. I'm going to go home because they gave us leave over Christmas. And I'm going home. Well, you really can't do that. Dude. Come on. I don't know if any of us come back from this shit. So I actually caught a flight, cost me about a thousand bucks to get a flight from Lejeune to Chicago. And then I turned around, spent half a day at Christmas with my family and turned around and flew back. I was AWOL as, as shit. Everybody knew I was AWOL. If I didn't show up when they had that first muster, my ass was grass, but I was able to go ahead and do that. I would say uh, out of bounds for sure. I don't think I'd call it AWOL though. So they, they were aware, but there, I should not have been allowed. They should have said, Hey, so an adult in the room should have said something. something. Yeah. Nobody did. Yeah. 
I wonder how many of those guys actually remember uh, their Christmas because they were probably all drinking anyways. Yeah, it was, there was a lot of that. Um, so so what, was the, what was the mindset like for you uh, is going from this has never happened to be to the reserves before to I'm at Lejeune and we're talking about getting on a plane to go overseas. It was fuck, it's scary. It was scary as shit because we didn't know what was going to happen or whatever. Turned out as good as it could go. Um, the crazy thing about it was, um, it's weird. So I'm sitting around the the table over there at uh, Christmas, and my my aunt, who's pro-America, pro-everything that the country does. It's like telling me, hey, look, you don't you don't have to go. She's trying to argue that I should make a beeline for Canada. She'll pay for the plane tickets herself. You don't need to go back, type thing. And it's like, but I signed up for this. So that was kind of a break with my, uh, a little bit of a break with some members of my family and stuff. So I'm like, yeah, hey, we want you to go ahead, kind of avoid your responsibility, what you signed up for. And then it's like, I, I couldn't do anything like that. And if I would have followed her advice, I would have been, shit, the military's given me so, mu- so much. It's given yeah. me some crap, but it's, I've also received a ton of benefits and whatnot from the military that they would have just messed my entire my life would have been off on some other type of tangent or some shit like that. It's hard to think that uh, in that particular incident, your family's encouraging you to become a fugitive because I don't think people realize, and it's a real thing, that during a time of war, if you go and you make a run for it, yeah, that, that quickly turns into desertion and your life is never going to be the same again. So, fly back. And we had a tight group of guys and we all, we thought we were all going to be the BAS together. Uh, That's an E4 having a fantasy there. Uh, So what happens is uh, the day before we get sent overseas, hey, guess what? You're going to go with, you're going with weapons, you're going with Echo, you're going with Delta, you're going with Golf. All the, everybody E5 and below got ferreted out to the line companies and shit like that. And what was weird was, it was a weird ass situation too, because it was the corpsman and we got put in barracks that probably hadn't been used since Vietnam and shit. Like uh, we got in there, the racks are all just like thrown all over. Like somebody had just dumped a whole shit ton of racks in, in there and stuff like that, lockers. So we ended up cleaning up the spaces and we had like your own rack and locker. It was fucking crazy. So I had my own section. There was an empty bed. Another corpsman had another section. We had the whole fucking hall to ourselves. Hey, let's go meet weapons company. Go down. Weapons, the entire weapons company is in the goddamn same size barrack hall together. Literally nut to butt. They got their, uh, already got up their portable uh, cots and whatnot. And there's about this much living space in between this person and the next person. Just completely different living conditions. It's like, I'm living in the Hilton and I don't, I'm bitching about it and I don't even realize it. 
And um, so we get sent overseas. And the craziest thing about getting into Saudi Arabia was it was like, you get off the plane and it's like, it was the most beautiful sunset I've ever seen in my goddamn life. I, I don't know what the hell it was. I felt like it was like, okay, it was a gift. Hey, you're going to die type thing, but we're going to give you this beautiful picture before anything goes bad or something. It was coming off the plane and stuff. Weird. I think we landed in Al Jabal and then they put us in a trailer park for three weeks. Like a trailer, trailer park? Yeah, a literal trailer park where they had their domestic workers or whatever. The Saudis are big on having foreign nationals come in and clean their houses and whatnot. A lot of Filipinos and whatnot. So we got their trailers. And then uh, one of the crazy thing about living there was trying to figure out how to use the goddamn toilet. That was one of the whole, basically a hole in the ground, um, like two handles and then a hose. (laughs) Oh, so you had a squatty hole. Squatty hole. Yeah. Uh, You know, it's it's a small things when you go over to foreign countries that makes all the difference in the world. And you don't realize that. And then we're, we're stupid because we're, we're bitching and moaning about this and we're actually, we have actually, we've got trailers and they're air conditioned. We do our training during the day and we, it, and we're bitching and moaning. So then we get orders to move out to the field. They put us on the ass end of an airport. Uh, I don't even know where the hell we were. And they stick us out. We set up the, the 50s and the Mark 19s and uh, we dig out. Uh, trenches, little trench line, very World War One-ish type thing. And we put up gun emplacements, sandbags, whole nine yards, and we're pointing out over the horizon. And they go off a little bit of a distance, and they set up some claymores and shit like that, because nobody told us where the fuck we were. <laughs> so we didn't know how close we were to whatever, but we're near an airport. We don't have our vehicles yet. We don't have any fucking clue as to what's going on are you guys integrated with the active duty unit or are they just kind of put you guys out there by yourselves they were all out there by my perception is we're all out there by ourselves they didn't oh, know what wow. they probably didn't know what to do with us so they're like okay you guys will do security for the fucking airport but we really didn't have anything to secure so we're out there we finally get our vehicles and then Kafki happens uh Saddam went ahead, sent some troops into Kashi, uh, which is a small ass little province and town or in Saudi Arabia. They crossed over, caused a bit of a stir, and some of our guys got detached to go ahead and head out to Kashi. It was either Delta or Echo. I could have those details wrong. It's it's been a while. So uh we got our vehicles. We were able to hook up the 50 cows and a Mark 19 to the vehicles. And we started doing patrols around the airport and shit. Uh, did that for a bunch. We broke a Humvee. Uh, doing some crazy ass driving in the desert and stuff. <laughs> we didn't get stuck in a wadi or something, but we were treating it like a race car or a dude. I was, was going to ask, were you guys, <laughs> were you guys saying, saying, let's see what this little thing uh, can do? Yeah. And that was, that wasn't Doc's fault. 
And then most of my experience uh, up until February, I don't even know when the war kicked in, January 17th? Yeah. We weren't there very long. Most of it was, Doc, wake the fuck up. We got to go out, got out of the vehicle. Okay. So spread out, make a perimeter on the vehicle, look around. We had the night vision goggles on and shit. Boom, 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 nothing there. Hop back in the vehicle and drive. So the thing actually kicked off. And then we moved from the airport to someplace near water. I don't know. We were near the coast someplace. I don't know what the fuck we were doing there. And we were close enough where they had a 52 raid and we could actually feel the concussions from the bombs. It was about three, four miles away. We weren't in any danger or something, but they had us getting holes and you could actually feel the ground shake. And this oh, is like wow. fucking five miles away. It's like, oh shit, we're getting a taste of this. And somebody didn't tell somebody something uh, like we were setting up shop there. So the next day we actually had some seals come out to our position trying to figure out what the fuck we were doing there. Cause it was, we had so many people there. They were tripping over each other and nobody knew what the fuck was what. So, uh, pop up and then it was like, Hey, it's time to go, go, go. So we push up to the border active duty units go across and then we cross over like the next day and it was like entering hell i don't know how else to describe it were you guys going into kuwait then yeah we went to kuwait and it was daytime but it was night oh the oil fields oil fields and shit and then it was raining oil so uh the highway of death or whatever they call it. Uh, we call it the highway of death. It's the highway that leads from Kuwait city up to Iraq. Oh yeah. Yeah. I know the one you're talking about. That the fast mover shot the shit out of. Yeah. The, the, the famous pictures. Yeah. So I got to see that live. Yay. Um, first dead body. I got to see outside of a coffin or whatever too. Uh, that was an experience. And then there were many, 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 many more after that. How old were you at this time? I was, uh, shit, it's 90s. I would have been, I turned 20. That was a lot. I mean, don't get me wrong. I have nothing but respect for Corman as a whole. And both of you and I have been in bad places. But just thinking back that a 20-year-old has to go march through that how was it to take it in afterwards it was weird and then you were fronting because of the fact that you didn't know how to deal with this shit like first guy came upon was laying there in the road he's all spread out and he looks like he weighed he looks like the kingpin from marvel comics because he's all blown up he's been sitting in the sun and stuff like that and he looks like he's about to pop which he probably would have done in the next day or so and then you've got the, the it was really weird because when the, the toes, tow missiles hit the tanks, uh, we hit the tank and the pop, the overpressure 
caused the top of the tank to pop off like a toy and it would flip in the air and come back down like that. Oh, wow. So, but everybody else, all the folks that were in the tank, there was a little hole that got, uh, got burrowed into the tank, created some overpressure and then the big overpressure. So everybody that was in the tank came out like spaghetti sauce. <sighs> and there was a lot of that. And then uh, the other thing that was weird too was they had like an underground compound. It was bizarre. So they had set up next to their vehicles and tanks and whatnot. And then they built like uh, structures and it was like a hidden city or almost there's that's where they slept. So they uh, put two by fours or whatever they could find above them. They covered that shit with sand and they were literally like burrowed under the sand like rats. And the really fucked up thing is, is you had high quality beds and stuff and stuff that they had ripped off from the Kuwaitis and shit in these holes. So you had, it was almost like um, coming upon a disaster scene. You never knew what the hell you were going to see, whether it be a corpse or whether it be um, an entire sea bag full of 35 millimeter film or something. Weird. It was, it was like weird because then there's like they had they ripped off their silverware. So they were get either got shot up or killed or they got out of there in a hurry, left it behind. So there was like family heirlooms, silverware. There's like shit scattered everywhere. So it was like a bunch of pirates came in and tried to raid the town and got nailed on the way out. Which is yeah, and then it, it, some of the stuff got left behind. Some of them, some of the shit you found in the vehicles. And then um, it was. And then it was just surreal because this is, it's daytime, but it's nighttime at the same time. And then at night, the oil fires just lit everything up. It looked like hell. I don't know how else to describe it. So I know I asked you how you felt. How how were the Marines dealing with this as you guys were coming? Uh, Marines were, uh, some of them were like, hey, this is cool as shit. Others are like, this is crazy. Um, some of them were like, we had a couple of folks that had no problems with the dead bodies that were actually looking through, checking pockets and stuff like that. Iraqi money was a big thing. They thought by grabbing some Iraqi money out of some of the wallets and stuff, they would have been rich or something. And then, of course, the currency changed. So none of that came true. Oh, God. That's uh, yeah. That's... And then pictures. That was the other thing. Um I took a whole bunch of pictures of everything when I came back and I got them developed and I was like looking at them and like, okay, why the hell did I do this? And I ended up throwing out all those pictures. Well, I was going to ask you about that because I know that's sad to say one of the big problems with today's war is people have their cell phones with them and selfies and stupid shit like that. Well, we would have gotten in them. All types of had trouble and shit. People would have their cell phones because people were posing with bodies. And, and it was just, it, but it was, it wasn't out of, I don't know, disrespect or malice. It was just a way to, hey, I'm tough and I can deal with this shit type stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I personally don't, I'm, I'll take shit for this. I don't have a problem with someone taking a picture with a dead body personally. 
if it's what's going to get them through to the, through the next fight. Um, should they be posting it on social media? Hell no. Yeah. Also, there's no social media at this time as well. So thank God. Um, so after you guys are doing all of that, do you guys, as a corpsman, um, are you treating, is there anyone to treat? I guess would be the question. There was, okay. So it, we were expecting to be bogged down for a couple of days. We didn't expect to go through them like a, a hot knife through butter and shit. So people are like, what that, what's our mission now? We, and they wanted to do something. So Delta actually started taking in some prisoners weapons came back and we patrolled the berms and stuff around the area, but there was really nothing for us to do. We went out, we took a couple of the higher ranking Marines up to go check out the highway of death. And it was kind of like sightseeing tours almost. Oh, wow. Um, we got lucky in terms of the fact that there was uh, a couple stupid injuries. Uh, Marine was uh, cleaning his uh, saw and didn't account for the spring, put the spring back in, wasn't careful. The spring shot out and went through his hand. Ah, and he's like, and like, this is, Wow, he's just in shock. He's like, this is cool. Because he's like, wow. <laughs> Incredibles. And then, and then uh, the other thing was snakes. Oh, really? So, yeah, lots of uh, snakes, camel spiders was the other thing, too, and rats. Oh, I hate rats. Um, Marines would come up. They ha- literally have a snake in their hand like this. Is this poisonous, Doc? What the fuck? <laughs> and then uh when we were had the the mark 19s and the the 50 cals dug in you always need to make sure that you throw your trash away or you take your trash and marines get lazy they eat the mres they bury the mres underneath the sand and that shit calls out rats so i was sitting on a 50 cal they just threw me out there because they didn't know what to do with me until my uh, head corpsman came up and said, hey, you know, do you the convention rules and shit? This is probably not... Not a good idea. ...having you on a cruiser weapon. But you're... I'm sitting there in the hole and I'm like, hey, I'll just keep them company whatever. So I'm sitting there and then all of a sudden... Like, what the fuck was that? And it was the goddamn rats that were smelling the food that had got buried underneath the sand and shit, the MREs and stuff. Uh. Yeah, rat, rats are always a huge issue. And as corpsmen, we know what rats do. They, yeah. We had a corpsman that actually uh, caught one and took, the old unit ones had this uh, mesh metal that you used to, uh, like, for splints and whatnot. Oh, he I know what you're talking about. Yeah, he made a little cage out of it and stuff like that, and he was keeping the rat as a pet. And the Marines didn't like this corpsman uh, too much. And they actually gave the, the rat its proteostigmine, uh, their proteostigmine tablets. Ended up killing the rat and stuff. I think he cried about that rat for about three days and stuff. It was crazy. Okay. On, on that happy note. <laughs> <laughs> Poor guy. The rat, that is. Not the, not, the, not the crybaby. So how long were you guys there after... I don't want to say after that. Was, that was weird. So the whole thing ends up wrapping up in February. Um, we get pulled back to Al Jabal, and then it was just the big, big traffic jam to get out of the country. 
and I think we're there through March. They literally did not have anything for us to do. So we wake up, we muster in the morning. Uh, we get, uh, we originally were doing all types of training and shit. And then the general said, Hey, these guys are my warriors. They've done a great job. We had a great victory here. Cut this shit out, cut them some slack and stuff. I mean, out in the middle of the desert. So they had to find something to keep us busy. So we basically had, uh, football and baseball, softball games that lasted all, all day long. Did you guys see an uptick or an uptick in injuries during that time? Yes, we did. Actually, uh, I was one of the upticks in injuries too. Yeah, you you know what happens when you have a bunch of Marines who have nothing better to do with their time. So one of the funny things was is I thought, hey, this would be cool uh, when we're getting ready to go overseas. We're gonna be next to the Red Sea, and I love to dive and I love to uh, snorkel and stuff. So I, I took my fins with me and the Marines are fucking laughing at me. I had my fins and my snorkel and shit and like stupid ass. We're going in the middle of the fucking desert. And I'm like, well, you, you never know. So we get set up in Al Jabal and we're there the first day. They cut us loose a little bit to explore. And they had this pier that went out into the water. It must've been about a mile and a half. And on one side, it looked like the apocalypse happened. Uh, oil, debris, dead animals, dead sea life, everything cascading up on the shore. And then this pier, I guess it was solid that went all the way down. On the other side of the pier, it was crystal blue, pristine water. You could, it's like Caribbean type, diveable water type stuff. So I'm thinking, okay, this is great. I found a place on the beach. I'm going to freaking swim here. This is awesome. Because they really got nothing for us to do after 9 o'clock in the morning, after we have to challenge it. And they're like, hey, Doc, we need another guy for uh, softball. Fuck, okay. So we set up a softball game. I got on first base. And then I saw one of the C5s. Uh, fly over and it's the first time I've ever seen a C5 fly over and getting ready to land and the thing looks like it it's this monster of an airplane it's just defying gravity it looks like it's fucking just hanging yeah. there they're crazy so I'm like, yeah I'm like Durr. and I look up <laughs> and son of a bitch hits the ball to shortstop so I'm like oh fuck take off to second base uh, guy gets in my way, Marine gets in my way, and I'm like, I'm going to, you know, take him out, break up the double play and shit. But the Marine moves. I step wrong on second base, and hence my injury. Crack my ankle. I go down. And I'm like, oh, shit, oh, shit, oh, shit. And the Marines, I think it's funny as fuck, so they're yelling, Corrin, Corrin, Corrin. <laughs> My buddy comes out. He's got his helmet on. He grabbed his rifle. He thought I'd been sniped and shit. And like, no, it's just my ankle. And he's like, okay, so we'll, we'll get you over to the BAS. So everybody's goal is to get the fuck out of there because there's nothing to do. And we're just waiting on a ride. So I go to my BAS and they got the AMOLs all inventoried. 
So an AMOL is all the medical supplies. All medical supplies. And once you inventory the AMOLs, if you crack anything open, the rule of the day was that you had to crack everything open up a second time and inventory it a second time, even though it's one box or some shit like that. So they tell me, we just got all our shit inventoried. We want to get the hell out of here. We're not going to treat you. We're going to send you over to 223. Okay. So I hop in the vehicle. Doctor takes a look at my ankle and says, we can't take care of you here, so we're going to send you to the fleet hospital. They send my ass to the fleet hospital. They take an x-ray, and they say that it's a really bad sprain. And they give me an HRAP and a whole bunch of, they gave me a bag of T3s. Oh, kind of like we do with Motrin. Yeah, except with this guy, <laughs> Narcotics. Yeah, narcotics. <laughs> Nothing in terms of regulate take one. Take as needed. So I'm walking on an ankle that's got the boot tied up as much as I can. It hurts. So I pop a pill, still hurts. Pop another pill. I am at another plane, um, which is crazy. So I get sent back, and it's about a shit, it's about a half mile truck from where we're at to where they got the chow hall set up on this compound where we're at. So I'm like, they muster, they go, hey, doc, walk ahead. We're not gonna have you walk in formation. And they notice I'm walking like Quasimodo. I'm dragging my goddamn leg behind for two days. Uh. So my senior corpsman comes up to me and says, you know, we need to get you seen again. Like, okay, not a problem. So they send me back to the fleet hospital. But in this particular fleet hospital, I got to interact with nurses for the first time. Um, I had oh, joy. just text and I had a male nurse the other time. So I noticed that there was this ungodly smell that seemed to be following me around. That's Navy nurse order, order odor. Uh, no, no, it was me, dude. Uh, Cause I had a really shower in, in three months. We've had the same oil soaked <laughs> uniforms on for three months. They literally were like self starched and stuff from sweat and everything else. I'm like, damn, again, you're like, what's that pretty smell? It's like girls type thing. And it's like, okay, they take a second x-ray. turns out my ankle is broken. They put me in a cast. They misread the first x-ray. It's like, fuck yeah, I'm going home. I'm going to go home before anybody else. No, didn't happen that way. We spent another two or three weeks there. And then I was on crutches the entire time. So we'd muster in the morning. I'd get on the crutches. I'd crutch all in the sand over the goddamn shower. Crutch back. There was nothing to do. And I still have my, I have, they gave me another baggie full of T3s. It's like almost they wanted not to bring the shit back home or something. So I I had exactly what it was. I had like an industrial sized bag of Tylenol three. So whoop, I'm popping it. So I'm anxious because there's it's hundred degrees in the shade, if that. And it's like, fuck. So they're out, Marines are out having fun playing softball. So I decided I'm gonna walk the pier. And the pier went out for about a mile and a half and a mile and a half back. And it was probably about almost a half mile, three quarters of a mile to get there. So I got up to about five miles a day on the goddamn crutches during the middle of the day. 
just going back and forth and stuff. I had a lot of experience with crutches in high school because I kept on twisting ankles and breaking ankles with track and cross country and shit. So when I came back, my shoulders kind of got mutated <laughs> and shit. And um, we got sent back uh, after all this. What's crazy was we flew Trump Airlines there, which is no longer in existence. I didn't even think it was in existence in the 90s. Damn. And I think we flew Trump Airlines back. I'm not 100% sure, but I know we flew Trump Airlines there. So they're going ahead and, okay, everybody bust open your shit. We got to check, make sure nobody's got any grenades, any weapons, any shit like that. They were doing them like 10 days too late. People were sending weapons and all types of crazy ass fucking shit home in the mail and stuff. And they were getting away with it. Um, there was a couple people I know, uh, like I mentioned the 35 millimeter film, he found on it, one of uh, the corpsmen found an entire bag filled with 35 millimeter film. He packaged all that shit up and uh, sent it home because he was into photography. They just happened to find all that goddamn film. It must have been about 300 rolls. So it's almost like, remember those little Fuji stands or Kodak stands or something? Yeah, yeah. So probably some of the Iraqis got into that, broke into that, stole the film, not knowing what the fuck to do with it. And one of our guys ended up with it. Okay, so it wasn't exposed. It was no, it was brand new film. Brand new film. Nice windfall for that guy. Yeah. And then people were sending weapons home in the mail. And then there was the amnesty box. And you were always afraid to look on the amnesty boxes. A couple of grenades and shit ended up in there as well before we left. Oh God, I love Marines. I really so do. we're like, okay, this is this is wonderful. Let's go ahead and get our shit together. So we do a final inspection of all our shit. And they're like, fuck it, Doc. You're you're stoned, you're useless because you're on the Tylenol threes and you're in crutches. You're not gonna smuggle anything back. It's like, okay. So I never got inspected. So the Marines are giving me shit to put in my, my sea bag and stuff to take back for them. <laughs> Get to the airport and they're like, okay, we're going to have a big ass fucking inspection. Crack open the sea bags. And I got this heavy ass sea bag with the UA shit in the sea bag on there. And I'm shitting my pants because I'm, what am I, you know, how am I going to deny any of this? And I'm on crutches and they're like, oh shit, dude, you, you're hurt. Just go. Go up to the plane, hand the Marine my sea bag. He throws the sea bag in the plane. It doesn't explode for God's sake. Which is <laughs> nice. <laughs> Nothing goes off. And they're like, okay, go up the stairs and it's a plane. They put me in fucking first class. I think it's the one and only time I've ever flown first class. With all the fucking officers in the front of the fucking 747 and shit. Because I had the cast on. They felt sorry for me. Oh, look at you. Uh, pity. So we flew back. We get to Lejeune. And then they uh, they want to make sure that nobody goes fucking crazy or anything before they send us home. So they put us in a holding pattern at Lejeune for a little bit. And then got to go out a couple times at some of the local drinking establishments. Uh, I put those in quotation marks around Lejeune. Oh, yeah. And yeah. I didn't have to buy any drinks because everybody was convinced that somehow I had gotten shot or sniped. And I didn't have the nerve to say, no, I, 
just don't want to talk. I know I tripped over second base. <laughs> uh, that's all good though. Um, and I bet you, the Marines that you were out drinking with did not, uh, did they did not, not correct the story either because this is a war hero and I really didn't drink. So they kind of passed the drinks and stuff to whoever I was out with or the corpsman I was out with. Good. So, so I was, told I wasn't going to be able to fly home to Chicago as long as I was in the cast. Okay, so I'll just get rid of the fucking cast. So ended up getting some uh those heavy duty duty scissors that we had. We cut through the cast and test the ankle out, taped it up and stuff real good. And I was able to walk on it well enough where I was actually able to get on the plane and get cleared to go on the plane to go home and we finally flew home and shit. So what was that like going home, seeing mom and or dad? It was fucking weird. Um, it's I the way I remember it is we like the corpsmen were separate than the Marines, so we corpsmen just flew home by themselves. We flew home as a group, but we were all together. Uh, whereas the Marines went home as an entire unit, and they met up at the reserve center, and everybody met up at the reserve center as a big to do and whatnot. We got off the plane at O'Hare. That was it. And I'm like, I don't, at that point, I didn't give a shit. I'm fucking home. We're walking through the airport and I see a sign and I'm like, I'm fucking happy. So I jump off, like I'm going to hit the sign, which I do. And then I go down and the fucking ankle crumbles on my ass. And then at that point, I'm like, everybody's looking at me like, you're stupid as shit, man. What's wrong with you? And I'm like, I, I'm okay. I'm okay. And fighting through the tears and whatnot. But got up and I didn't do that again and like there was nobody there to meet me because I had no cell phone this era before cell phone okay I, I know where the fuck to go subway's here I'll take uh subway from O'Hare out to Skokie Swift Skokie Swift my dad was a bus driver I knew which bus routes I got home and my dad met me at my house which was no longer, my dad didn't live there anymore. He was, there was a restraining order against him still. And it was some weird shit between me and my dad because my dad thought I was this wonderful hero. And there was like lavish praise on us for going overseas and kicking ass and stuff. And it's like, I didn't feel like any of that was deserved. It was like this weird guilt thing. So it was really unusual. Because of the fact everybody's telling you you're a hero, you're, I just went and did my job. This is, I didn't really see shit. I saw death and destruction, but I really didn't, you know, nothing heroic, nothing, no war stories to tell or anything like that, nothing too crazy or whatnot. And um, it was just this weird dynamic. And then the big question I hated with everybody, because it was like, there was so much death on that highway and so many dead bodies and car. It was like this huge traffic jam just filled with corpses and shit. And then all anybody wanted to ask you when you got back home was, did you kill anybody? Did you shoot anybody? Did you kill anybody? Did you shoot anybody? I must've heard that about 75,000 times. And what was doubly weird about it is they go back to college in May. And I'm only 20, I'm not even 21 yet. And I feel like I'm fucking 55 years old 
in comparison to everybody else I am hanging out with. Because all the shit they're worried about, I'm no longer, well, shit, that, there's no reason for you to be worried about that. It, it's stupid. Because yeah. of the fact that I've seen all this craziness and your, your values kind of shift and whatnot. It's weird. So, I mean, now, uh, post 9-11, post Iraq, there's a lot more help out there for, uh, for returning vets. Did they offer you anything? No, there wasn't shit. And then the thing was, if you came forward with any of that, what happens was it was, uh, you were a head case or something. So did you, um, what was I trying to say? So like now they, for reservists, you kind of have a dwell period where you don't necessarily have to go back to drill for a while. Were you they, guys back in April? No, we weren't. Oh, what happens was is uh, they gave us till September off. And it wasn't so much, I think, for our mental health or anything. I think it was more along the lines of there was no goddamn money left because we blew the federal budget for that year. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Because I, I went to boot camp on January 27th, 91, and went to core school in March. So you guys were just coming home. We right. were in May. We were home. Uh, yeah, shit. I think. That but I mean, I mean, the the war itself was over by the yeah, time I got to core school. So, wow. Um, coming back, what was it like for the next, lack of a better way of putting it, several years of budget cuts, drilling, all of uh, that? Well, it's weird. There. Are, Two weird things about it. Basically, you didn't want to speak up at all because that you were having issues. Uh, I think one of the common things is when you come back, at least this is my experience, is I couldn't sleep on a bed. It was too goddamn soft. So I'm like, okay. So I ended up sleeping on the floor for about six months after I came back. And um, there's a girl I crushed on a whole lot in college. Uh, her name was Maria. And we were actually at a party. It was like New Year's and stuff. And uh, we didn't mess around. We just kind of fell asleep next to each other. And what happens is, is every night we were there, the goddamn alarms would go off. So you, you'd have like a klaxon going on in terms of a gas attack or something. So pretty much in your sleep, you reach over... In your sleep, you literally grab your gas mask, put your fucking gas mask on. You do some, I check for my pistol. So I'd reach over and check for my pistol and reach over to put the gas mask on. And then fuck it, if I'm gonna die anyways, I'm gonna die comfortable, put the sleeping bag. Cause I wasn't on duty, there's nothing for me to do. Right. I think it was good gas tech, can't do shit anyways about it. But you were literally trained almost to do this in your sleep because it happens so many damn times. And fell asleep next to her. And then I almost choked her out and shit. Because she's like this. I kept the pistol here on the side at a uh, shoulder, holster, shoulder holster. Or I put it on the, the flak, which is like right here. So all types of crazy dreams. So reach down here. No worries. Get the gas mask. It's not there because this is we're in civilian world go through the motions, put it on, and then reaching over here, trying to get the goddamn gun. And I'm freaking the fuck out because I can't get the goddamn gun. 
and she's laying next to me and I'm like pulling her over. I'm like, scared the shit out of her. And then I didn't realize what the hell happened and we really didn't discuss it after. She broke up with me right after and stuff too. I understand, no worries. Yeah. But I think I had that same type of situation uh, for years. It would, The dream went on probably for about... Um, yeah, maybe two, three years afterwards. And I started dating uh, my wife. Same thing happened. And then one, one time I wake up and I'm like, what the hell's going on? I'm getting hit. It's like covered like this. And she's just hitting the shit out of me. And I'm like, she's like, you're not there anymore. Wake the fuck up. Calm the fuck down. You're trying to reach for your pistol, which isn't there. Cut it the fuck out. You're home. And it's like something fucking snapped. And then I got off that loop after that. But it was about two years after it. So every night my wife would lie next to me. I try to reach over and grab the damn gun and almost choke her out. So one time she just had enough and she just, she pummeled me. But shit, it broke the cycle and it worked. I was going to say, I met your wife before. She could probably kick both of our asses. Yeah, blindfolded. Yeah. So. So let's skip ahead a little bit. So the next, after, obviously after Desert Storm, Desert Shield, um, Clinton takes office in 92, 93. Yeah, and they do, they uh, want to balance the budget. So they do it real quick. My son's got a cello lesson. Let me give him my phone real quick. Oh, no problem. It's all right here. So we'll be right back. So yeah, they they got it everything, and it chases a whole bunch of people out. So you have some really good leadership at about the captain level about this time, lieutenant captains that are coming up. They get out that because they don't see a future for the military. Um, I stayed in because it was a steady job. And I was in college. I needed the money and stuff. I, you know, I forgot to ask. Wh- at what point in time did you go to field med? Actually, after coming back from Desert Shield, Desert Storm. It was fucking weird. How, how quick did that happen? Like, were you uh, staying here? We got, so we ended up doing, they changed it up. So they allowed us as reservists to come in on weekends to do like five, weekend sessions and then do uh it was a two-week session of field med out in uh, pendleton oh wow okay so you were you didn't go to an active duty or through the same class that the active duty did correct and then uh weird thing was is when we came back they let us be marine corps regs so i'm not uh an 8404 yet by any ways or means but because i'm serving with the marines i'm actually at that time i was actually wearing the marine corps reg uniform and stuff Oh, okay. So what was field med like for someone who had done a deployment with the Marines in a a combat situation? It was a joke. Um, I was also, I continued my, my piece of shitness uh, while I was there um, because it was a very good runner. Uh, The the gunny that was heading the stuff up over there wanted me to make me the guide on. And then I have no natural sense of rhythm and being the guide on, you have to be, lockstep with the guy calling cadence and shit. I already ran into that in boot camp where I've got no rhythm and I was our pock for like two days 
But because I have no rhythm, everybody's out of step, out of time, and big shit shit. So I didn't want the job at all. And But I didn't want to tell Gunny, I don't want the job because I have no rhythm. I'm like, ah, it, it's, I don't want the guide on job because it's a fucking stupid thing. Wrong thing to say to the Gunny because you're representing uh, the group, Spirit of Core and whatnot. I pushed a lot of earth that day. I think I might've actually corrected the earth axis or whatever. <laughs> and then he made me attend uh, PT uh, with everybody else. The folks that were in danger of actually going ahead and um, like failing out, failing out. And that was the worst thing he could have done to me because that I was a PT monster at that time. I love to run was doing seven, eight miles a day. I used to do triathlons and shit like that. And I was like running circles around the goddamn formation as we were running in the morning and stuff. It was, it was awesome. Uh, so did they, uh, did you, when you showed up, I'm assuming you had your, I forgot what it was, your medal for going to Desert Storm Shield. Yeah, the, the SWAR and uh, they gave us- uh, The Kuwaiti Defense Medal or whatever. And also we got the FMF ribbon as well. Okay. Which so, was the predecessor for the warfare device. Yeah. So having all of that going to field med, did they? They were confused for a couple of seconds, but they just kind of rode with it. Okay. So they, they still treated you like you had no idea anything about the yeah. Marine Corps. Now what was fun, funny was, is, uh, because we were through it before, there was a guy that was in there with me. His name was Mike Johnson. Mike, it was actually, actually had joined the army in shit. I'd like to say 86 or 87. Right from army boot camp, he actually per, uh, got shit or threw, he finished up his SOI, whatever the army's version of SOI is. Okay. I have, yeah, they're basic infantry shit. They're basic infantry course. He, he went, became a medic and then did a basic infantry course, and then went from that right to Grenada. Oh, okay. Wow. He was actually one of the few people that got injured in Grenada, believe it or not. That's crazy. He, um, he and Then he was actually, uh, he went with the state platoon when we were in Desert Shield, Desert Storm. And, and the state platoon. Yeah, the snipers. And then we got to go through field med school together and they had this um crazy ass operation they put people out on patrol and then they'd come across uh, like uh folks that got hit that were intermingled with civilians or some shit like that and like okay it was like last day you guys can make up your own injuries and shit like that so i look at mike and mike looks at me and mike had gotten labeled a psych psych patient or something I, like i got an idea so i take my helmet i actually put it underneath my uniform I pretend like I'm a pregnant woman giving birth and shit. So instructor comes up, he's all hard charging stuff. And he sees me and he's like, what the fuck's the problem here? Oh, I'm pregnant, sir. And he just, <laughs> he almost <laughs> pissed himself from laughing so hard. And then Mike is screaming, that's my wife. That's my wife. And we just played that shit up. And then um, nobody knew that me and Mike knew each other. Uh, from Desert Shield, Desert Storm, we were at the same unit and stuff like that. So we're like all gathered in the barracks or something, like the first day, meeting everybody. 
And I saw Mike. I'm like, hey, Mike, how's your wife and my kids? <laughs> and Mike looks at me like, what the fuck? And it's like everybody just like whole big circle moved away and everybody's expecting a fight and stuff. That son of a bitch told his wife about it and she flew up and was there the last day we graduated from field med. And then she just rode my ass about that comment <laughs> for the last 24 hours of being in California there. Uh, you got to love it. So um, after field med and going through the Clinton years, did you guys, was there anything that uh, happened during that time pre nine 11 that jumped out? Uh, no, um, I got, so met my wife, she graduated from college, uh, 95. Her first duty station was down in Fort Gordon. Now your wife is, uh, just so people know, you're a spouse of, she was active duty, right? Right. And, uh, full-time, uh, nurse, army nurse. So her first duty station was down in Fort Gordon. I moved down to Georgia to be with her in 96. And then we got to go to San Antonio, I think it was 90, 97, 98, somewhere in there. And then I got to get hooked up with uh, the recon unit uh, down in San Antonio. So with um, with all of that happening, what was it like uh, being the spouse of a commissioned officer, being that, enlisted? That was unusual. Um it wasn't a big deal until I actually got mobile orders and stuff. And it wasn't a big deal until we got sent out to Colorado. So OIF, I, I got out in 98 because being with the recon unit is pretty much like a, a second full-time job. Yeah. We would show up on Thursday. We would drill from Thursday night all the way through Sunday, um, maybe three out of three months or so. And then you were always expected uh, hey, we need corpsman support for jumps type of thing. Yeah. Uh, so there's always extra time. You could actually, you, it's a full-time job if you wanted it to be pretty much. Yeah. They, those guys, I mean, they really needed two active duty corpsmen. Uh, right. Their and they, they never had enough bodies and the I and I was always overtasked and whatnot. Yeah. So you get out in 98. Um, when do you come back in? I come back in right after September 11th. We're in Colorado Springs. I'm driving out to my job, which is in Ellicott, which is like 45 minutes out of the Springs in Kansas, and turn on the radio, and 9-11 happens. So I was uh, tooling with the idea to get back in and go ahead and uh, do it, but it takes a while because my paperwork get, got lost in the shuffle. So I am able to come back in, but I'm able to come back in as uh, a second-class as a quad zero. Why? Uh, huh? They, they fucked up on the paperwork. And I didn't keep any of the paperwork or think it would be important one day to save any of that paperwork. So what were you when you got out? Uh, senior chief. I was a 8404 no, 9502. No, no. I mean, um, first, time? First, first time. First time. I actually, I was a second class. Okay. So you didn't lose any rank. Right. They, they just misplaced your NEC. So uh, I was going, hey, I'm an 8404. And they're like, well, it says on your paperwork, you're a quad zero. Like, we could correct that. We'll send you back through field med school. And I'm like, I'm 
I want to go, but I don't want to go that bad. I don't have to go through field med school again. That's bullshit. Takes a while to correct. End up correcting the paperwork. Um, OIF kicks off. They finally correct my paperwork. I'm on a list to go. And uh, we started taking karate classes up in, um, can't remember the town, small town outside of Colorado Springs. And I blow up my knee. So I go in to reserve center the next day, talk to the corpsman. Hey, you know, I blew out my knee. He's like, bullshit. He didn't believe I actually, no, here, here's the medical paperwork and shit like that. He's like, what the fuck am I going to do now? I got to find, so somebody else went in my stead, basically. Was, this for, was this for the invasion or was this for one of the post-invasion? Uh, this was the post-second second one, the six months after. Okay. So it's like, okay, uh, don't know what the fuck's to do. All right, cool. Got it figured out. And it turned out to be a blessing. Uh, my wife gave birth to our first child. About the same time, I had the knee surgery to correct the, the knee. And then she got profist to a medical unit. And then she got sent overseas. So she actually set, set up the hospital in the green zone or help set up that she got attached to the 10th cash. I believe it was. Okay. They got in country. They didn't have a mission because everything went boom, boom, boom. Just like desert shield, desert storm. She got profist out to the airborne unit that came in, uh, in Northern Iraq, I guess. And then she got moved down to the green zone to help treat patients at the green zone hospital. I don't know what the name of the hospital. Uh, if it's the one inside the green zone, it's, uh, I think it's Baghdad ER. That's it. Yeah. So when she comes back, how was, how was that? It was uh, weird because of the fact that it's, well, stupid male ego gets in the way. Um, I, that kind of cured me of shame and stuff in terms of the male ego. I have to give credit to the spouses and dependents and shit. Because it's much harder to stay behind and deal with the bills and the kids, at least this is from the enlisted guy's perspective, than it is being overseas because, oh shit, I have a child, I got to make sure fed, clothes, bills are taken care of, whole nine. And it was a newborn, I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. Trying to do that on a busted knee. It was, it was a big adventure. And then um, there was an adjustment period when she came back. Uh, which we were able to go through. And then a year later, I got a phone call. I'm teaching class uh, in San Antonio at this time. And they're like, hey, congratulations, you're getting, you're getting moped. Like, shit, yeah, I've been waiting to go overseas. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, you're not going overseas. You're going on to Corpus. You're going to work for us here. Okay. What do you mean, Corpus? I'm an 84. Well, you're going to be backfill. So they mobilized me, and then I called my wife up, and I'm like, hey, honey, I, I just got moped. She's like, okay, where are you going? Well, I'm going to Corpus Naval Hospital Corpus Christi. For those that don't know, it's about 90 minutes away from San Antonio. Yeah, and it's a little shithole of an area. Hospital, and it's like, and she's like, uh, 
Well, you call them back up. <laughs> You're not going to take those goddamn orders. <laughs> you want to go overseas. <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> it's just like, and I'm like, and by this time I realize, you know, picking sand out of your ass and stuff like this is choice orders. This is pay raise. Cause I'm not making shit as a teacher. This is going to help out. And I'm like, she calmed down. She came around. She's like, okay, yeah, no problem. Um, so I ended up working down at Corpus in Naval education training. And then they had an opening pop open, um, at SAMSI. They needed a liaison because Corpus was taking care of the patients that were coming in to SAMSI. So this is, this must've been what? Oh, six. This is Oh five. I worked in ed trade to right about Oh six. And then it was the best orders in my entire life because it was me and the chief. And my house was literally 20 minutes down the road. So driving to work at shit, I mobilized from my house. And then um, it was weird because of the fact that Corpus was taking care of the patients. We first got the guys from the, the Frank Cable in. Um, right. Bob and Matt and all and Mike. Yeah. And then uh, after that happened, uh, the Navy decided to set up its own uh, wounded warrior uh, battalion type thing, Navy Safe Harbor. Right. So um, I caught orders to Safe Harbor. And these are like back to back to back orders. I ended up being on active duty for about four and a half years. I remember um, that. Um so I, I know, so this kind of brings us to where our story met. So to late 2006, the Frank Gable, which was a sub tender, had a boiler accident. Right. Four, four sailors got sent over here um, because of severe, severe burns. That's what BAMC is known for. Um, it's, the only burn unit within the, within the uh, whole military hospital system. Yeah. So they send anyone who has any quote unquote severe burns uh, here to Bamsey. They have you and at the time that I meet you, uh, Chief Alonzo and Chief Carrillo. Right. Uh, Chief, they brought in Chief Alonzo after I got reassigned out to Safe Harbor, which I think was no November of six. Yeah, it was and probably Safe before Harbor I got there. It was just starting to uh, go ahead and and uh, it was basically trying to figure stuff out. It was in um, reaction to the Dole Shalala, Shalala Commission. I'm probably mispronouncing the senator's last name and stuff. Was that because there were some? Um, we also had Bob Westover. Yeah. Who I'm trying to get on. Um, Bob was the reason why I got my job. Because Bob was a reserve. CB senior chief who Correct. was hit severely by an IED, um, severe burns. He is, I'm trying to teach him how to use zoom so he can come on and talk about it, but it's like teaching, I don't know, a dog to do calculus. Yeah. Uh, amazing person, just not really super computer literate. That being said, uh, Bob's in a coma for what months? While and then his pay gets shut off. He is demoed because someone didn't realize 
apparently this is the story that he tells me is that they did an audit on his CB unit and said, oh, this guy's still mobilized. Must have missed him. Click. Dropped him. And then what's amazing is the reserve center is literally across the street from Samsi. Yeah. I mean, we're talking 300, 400 yards at the most. Yeah. And so I've had uh, Bob's wife at the, no, not my wife. Um, I don't think they were married yet. Or the, uh, at the time is making a fuss. Corpus is tired of dealing with them. So they push her to me. Um, and then I go ahead and meet with the folks over at the reserve center. And then Safe Harbor was actually able to go ahead and get the pay turned back on. But Bob is still uh, hooked up to machines and treatment and stuff. And his his injuries were way severe. Yes. He, he's lucky he's in as good a shape as he is. So I saw him in person back in September, October at a CB thing. And he is by far better than I think in the entire time I've known him. He's such a rich and full of life person right now, which is a really good thing compared to when he left. I, when I saw him a couple years back, um, I stopped by the reserve center. I really have fallen off in terms of the chief stuff and whatnot, but I stopped by the reserve center and caught him and, uh, Son of a bitch shook my hand. And he's the type of guy that goes in there and gives you the goddamn handshake. But the way his injuries are, literally when he shakes your hand, now he kind of pinches your freaking hand like a... Like a, yeah. Like a lobster. I don't mean to be... <laughs> no, yeah. No. But it's like a lobster claw type thing. It locks in. And he knows he's got the upper hand with the handshake and shit. And he's the type of guy that lets you know, hey, look, my... Shit. <laughs> yeah, but... Crazy. Yes. So um, there's also McGinnis is there. I cannot think of his. Yeah. You guys arrived on the same day. It was actually. No, no. You're you're thinking of uh, Mike. Mike. Okay. My bad. Dayton. 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 Yeah. McGinnis was a corpsman who I think got a leg amputated from an IED blast. Okay. Yeah. I remember now. He, he He left pretty quickly after I got there. McGinnis also had done uh, some road races and stuff too. He he was uh, doing because his amputation was higher up, it right above the knee. Yeah, yeah. Which makes it more complicated. So, um, Bamsey was a weird. When I got there, it was a weird little mesh of probably fifty or sixty wounded Marines, six Navy, and then a whole. I don't think we had any Air Force when I was there, but a whole bunch of. It was an Army. Uh, Wounded Warrior Center, basically. Right. So what was that like? I mean, you went to Desert Storm and saw, personally walked the path of probably the most destruction we've done since World War II, if if not Vietnam. And now you're liaisoning and helping wounded warriors. How was, how was that transition for you? It was uh, different. It was actually more stressful than desert shield, desert storm in some aspects, because you were getting a phone call after hours 
and some paperwork wasn't taken care of. Somebody's pay was being shut off. Um, some higher up muckety muck got word that something wasn't taken care of that was already taken care of two weeks ago. You had to jump through hoops to make sure that that person knew that that issue was already being addressed and stuff. And there was um, communication gaps as well in terms of the liaison team itself worked very well together and stuff. But what you ran into is sometimes like you'd have a, a, a distinguished visitor come through or something and a family member would mention something to a senator or something else. And you would not believe the holy hell that came downhill when a senator or somebody else gets involved in terms of this has got to get fixed now. Why isn't this fixed? reports, justification, timeline, stuff like that. There's a lot of paperwork and shit behind the scenes and stuff. So you went from pretty much a dirt grunt corpsman to dealing with, I don't know how many high profile uh, dog and pony shows because it, it, it was, it was Yeah. I actually, it was, um, what's his face came through. Um, that was one of the weirdest ones ever. Um, the CNO. Oh, uh, Mullins? Mullen. And the only people at the hospital that actually greeted Mullen was myself and Chief Carrillo. I'm a first class at this time. What? Now, he had uh, folks came out at the reserve center, but at the Bamsey side, the commanding general didn't meet him. And basically, myself and Chief Carrillo had the CNO and his wife to we picked them up from the airport. Uh, drove them all over the place and stuff. And then I visited with you guys and stuff. So CNO is the chief of Naval operations. Um, I don't know that I was there for that one. Oh, no, no, he did. He, he, no, he, he can't, I think he did come back a second. He time. came back a second time, but he had gotten promoted. Uh, he was no longer CNO. He got, was, Oh, that's when he was, he's a staff. Yeah. Yeah. That's the one when he came back. Now the line to see him when he was chairman of joint chiefs of staff, when he got there, they were lined up outside the hospital about 15 minutes early. Everybody a flag rank and stuff waiting to, kiss his ass when he came the second time and stuff. Yeah. I, I can tell you just from me being the only guy with the purple thingy and wound, Navy wounded warrior there, how many dog and pony shows I had to go to. I can't imagine the background behind all that. I mean, it was one thing just to be an, a body there, but to, to do what you had to do at an HM1, then you did end up picking up chief while you were there. Oh, the other funny thing, too, was uh, camp, uh, when the cable accident happened, uh, Mick Bond Campa was actually used to serve, that was his uh, duty station, I believe, prior to him picking up Mick Pond. So he knew right. the guys from the cable. And I actually picked him up, lowly old first class me, picked him up from the airport, drove him around and stuff. It, it was crazy. Um, and this is, I'm a lowly reservist. I shouldn't be flying with all of these higher up monkey mugs and whatnot. What was that like for you though? Uh, seeing the political side? Uh, disappointing. Uh, because people were fighting over stupid shit. And it became sometimes 
Sometimes you guys are used as props to advance people's careers. Or, um, and then there was, uh, were you there when McCain came in? Uh, maybe. Oh, uh, did he, did you visit with him at all or no? I, I don't think so. So when he came in, the burn unit is basically divided up into two different sections. You have the, in, the ICU portion of the burn unit where any type of infection or germs or disease is brought into the room can cause the patient to die. So you actually have to gown up, get up, right. all gowned up stuff to visit and whatnot with the patients. And part of my job as liaison was, sir, you have to put on the equipment. You got to do this. You got to do this. Boom, 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 boom. That was one part of the ICU. Second part of the ICU were people that were further along in their treatment. In some cases, you wore the garb, but you didn't have to be fully garbed up and shit like that. Or you could just come in the room and visit. Uh, when McCain came in, um, he's like, hey, come here to visit type stuff. We had problems getting him to slow down because he wanted to do the visits, boom, 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 and getting him to gear up and put the, the stuff on to go ahead and visit the guys that were critical, and stuff like that. And you run into some of that with some of the distinguished visitors. And then some people just kind of rushed through it, like it was a photo op type thing. And so there were other people that actually took the time and conversed. You got to see different aspects of people's personalities and stuff and how they react to their positions and stuff. It was, it was weird. So did you, what did you think of the community? I mean, you, you had lived here for a few years prior to being mobilized. So how was, I was really impressed by how much the local community really cares about. Yeah, they, they rolled out. Uh, one of the people I going to give a big shout out to uh, Janice Rosnowski. Yes. Uh, they did great things with uh, rehab, a whole bunch of rehab stuff. Uh, one of the things that I can give them a shout out about is uh, they used to have a bicycle ride they did down here uh, where you would bike from San Antonio to Corpus over two days. That's right. The uh, What was it? The MS, MS-150. MS-150. Yes. And you'd stop and stay overnight in Beeville, right around the 90, 95 mile mark, and then get up the next day and, and ride. And then her and her husband went ahead and donated a whole bunch of money, bikes, equipment, supplies, and a lot of time to ensure that the guys that were in various uh, stages of recovery and whatnot got a chance to ride bikes, hand cycles. And it, just the outreach from her alone was incredible. Then you had local restaurants that were also going ahead and, hey, guys, come in a Tuesday or Wednesday night. Grab yourself a steak. Thank you type stuff. And I think even Best Buy stepped up. Actually, Best Buy did step up. And they had a whole bunch of folks come in and they gave them free laptops um cameras here's some it software if you're interested in getting started yeah about it and stuff like that too yeah i remember i remember those days i, I reached out to janice um she stepped down from operation comfort recently um i'll talk to you about that after this okay uh, 
but yeah, we're, I'm going to, I'm still working on her to try to get her on. I, I, cause part of the thing with this is I also want to talk to people who support veterans and stuff like that. So regardless if she's still there or not, what she did for us, uh, when we came home and her reason for doing it is just worth telling. So with you, um, during this whole time, I mean, I, I can promise you, I was not the best patient in the world while mm-hmm. I was there. And I wanted to make people's hair like fall out, which I think I did a good job with you um, <laughs> and Tim, but you picked up chief and then you kind of disappeared. So when your orders ended. No, what happens was, is um, my wife caught orders from the ISR out to Walter Reed. Okay. So she was working at BAM. That's right. She was working at BAM. She was actually the, uh, the head nurse over at the ISR. Hmm. Okay, which is the institute of made for a very interesting dynamic because I was uh, started out as a first class, being married to an army major within the same command, but different services, different services, and oh, what was the what was the colonel's name, the marine colonel's name that was the headed up their group? Oh, I cannot think. Uh, You know what? Honestly, I cannot remember. I just remember the the liaison staff. So Campa came, or McPon Campa came in from DC. And he did a whole. There was a congressional hearing about fraternization within the ranks and stuff, and how it wasn't an issue in the Navy. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> <laughs> I am giving him a tour with my wife, who's a major. We're both in uniform. And the colonel's there, and he's like, hey, Big Pond, didn't you just come back from a conference in D.C.? And he's, he starts talking about fraternization and shit like that. And did you notice something unusual about these two persons' names? And I'm always like, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> and she's Filipino, and she's got the last same rice key like me. And he looks, he's like, I don't want to know. <laughs> Oh, that's hilarious. I didn't know that that ever be, was an issue, was ever even considered an issue. It was unusual because driving down to Corpus when I wasn't full time at Corpus, I didn't know the gate guards. And whenever I had to drive back to Corpus, I did a lot of that, even with Safe Harbor, because uh, I had an officer sticker on my car. That's right. It, it's even more obvious than back then when we had the, the DOD stickers. I forgot about that. So I'd get stopped. Whose car is this? It's mine. No, it's not. Yeah, my name's on the title. Why do you have an officer sticker then, Chief? I'm married to an officer. You can't do that. I can't. I I married her. (laughs) (laughs) I actually got detained at the gate a couple of times. Oh, wow. um, Because they didn't believe I was who I was and the car didn't belong to me. Wow. But interesting enough, Texas itself was, uh, or SAMHSA itself, the community coming together and stuff, the machinations of San Antonio and SAMHSA, very different from D.C., completely different from D.C., because she caught orders to Walter Reed, the original Walter Reed, the Army Hospital which were they were in the process of closing down, even though they had just allotted 
millions of dollars to renovate it and update it and stuff, which was crazy. And then I got uh, Safe Harbor allowed me to stay on and I caught orders out to um, Bethesda. Oh, okay. Okay. That's, that's, I just know that you disappeared. I didn't know whether you got demobbed or. No, uh, cause I was at Bethesda for a bit and then, um, that was unusual cause they had their own liaison office similar. I didn't have, they were helpful. I didn't have the same, I had a better working relationship with the patient office or patient liaisons than I did with the actual liaison liaison type things. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, it was weird. So did you end up uh, ever working for Safe Harbor Harbor at the Navy Yard then while you were out there? No, uh, what they did was I went ahead and uh, Safe Harbor was unusual because they originally just wanted to take care of the wounded warriors. And then they're like, wait, we've got terminal uh, patients too in terms of cancer and a whole a bunch of other stuff as well. Yeah. So we picked up the, the, the sailors that had long-term issues or were transitioning in the process of transitioning out of the Navy, they couldn't stay in because they had long-term health issues. And the liaisons at Bethesda did a good job, uh, but they even more stuff in terms of distinguished visitors Baseball tickets, opportunities to meet with celebrities, tons of DVs. Like everybody want to go ahead and meet a hero or a wounded warrior or somebody else. And one of the things that really got me was, okay, so we had this kid that was involved in a car accident. Uh, And he's uh, paralyzed. And he's HIV positive. And this is still, shit, this is 2008. So it's still a stigma around, there's always been a stigma around HIV and shit like that. So he's in the room and then we got a guy that comes in from, uh, shit, he was came in from Iraq, drank one too many monsters, had a fucking heart attack while in country because he's drinking a monster and shit. Jesus. Yeah. Well, he's chewing too. So, um, older gentleman, this guy who's getting treated for HIV in a car accident is a sailor and has as much value as the sailor in the room next to him. But the HIV guy didn't get any love from any, anybody, no celebrity visitors. Nobody wanted to see him. They wanted to see the guy that came in from Iraq, Iraq, that just happened to have a heart attack while he was overseas. Now there are other guys when the words, I, realize that and stuff in terms of the level there's like a dv type level or stuff for who they go visit and shit like that but always kind of a sailor is a sailor is a sailor and you're supposed to take care of all your guys not just a couple so that's one of the things that burned my craw about um uh bethesda and then i also got some health issues myself uh trying to deal with some of the stuff that some of my sailors had going on and stuff too so I wasn't eating correctly. I wasn't taking care of myself, put on weight as well. Um, and I'm sitting in the office one day, this is 2009 and I have chest pain. And I'm like, shit, this fu-. it felt like somebody was stabbing me in the side of the chest, nothing centralized. I'm like, okay, well shit, I'm working a hospital. So 
I'm a patient habit and I go, hey, I'm gonna be out for a minute. I'm just gonna get checked out in the ER real quick. Go ahead, do that. And then um, turns out, um, I'm getting anxious because I'm sitting in the ER for a couple hours. Nothing's happening. My blood tests come back. I'm about to go ahead. Hey, I'm gonna do the chief thing. Guys, I'm out of here. And then the doctor comes in, sit your ass back down. Uh, you're not going anywhere. So I had a positive D-dimer test, which is indicative of uh, potential blood clots and whatnot. Oof. So like a fuck. Uh, so I end up, and I'm the worst god. You think you were a bad patient. I'm the worst goddamn <laughs> patient in the entire world. Uh, I end up in the uh, telly uh, portion in the hospital for the next three days. So they can't figure out why the fuck I had a D-dimer test. So my medical record goes from about being this big to volumes. I got screened for cancer. I had multiple CT scans. Uh, anything and everything in terms of tests that you have done, I had done. And they could never figure out uh, the D-dimer actually went down a little bit. I was asymptomatic. So they're like, well, you're sick, but you're not sick. So then Safe Harbor is like, okay, it's time come off orders, so no problem. So I've got these health issues and they're telling me, you need to be concerned about your health, but uh, you really, you, there was this gray area and nobody yeah. was really clear about what the hell was going on. So I, I've seen this all the time, where you've got a patient that's in the hospital, hey, we'll cut you loose type thing. And then two to three days later, something happens to that particular person or something. and. They're out of the Navy and no benefits. And then they got to try to scrape and get back in and stuff. So I'm getting demobbed. I go down to Norfolk. We're living in uh, Montgomery County uh, in Bethesda at this time or near, near Bethesda at this time. And it's about four hours away. And my wife is the head nurse over at, um, I, I would like to say it's the ICU, the step down ICU over Walter Reed but we've got three kids now and our parents can't come out to help. So I'm at Norfolk and they're like, Hey, we can demob you in a hurry, be out of here in a week, or we could start a medical board on you. Okay. How long am I going to be here for you to do a medical board? Well, we're all backed up. You're not priority. It could be six months to a fucking year. My wife's on my ass about the kids. I've worked, the wounded warrior portion of this enough that I'm familiar with the paperwork. Fuck it. I'll do the VA claim myself. So I come off orders in 2009 and then I'm out of work and I'm still continuing to have health issues and I'm waiting for the VA to come back. I finally pick up a job about 10 months later, which is a fantastic civilian job working for GIT. And then the VA finally comes back and they come back with an 80% rating. So part of my health issues, I picked up diabetes um, and a couple chronic other issues. And so the rating is not for anything I've done. It's just old person shit and genetic shit. So the thing that pissed me off about it was the fact that I just got my 100% rating Maybe, fuck, um, September. Of this year? Last year. Mm -hmm. And that's a significant amount of 
scratched. Yeah. yeah, it is. As opposed to even a uh, 50, 60 or 70%. It, it's the comparison. Yeah, there, there, there's a ginormous jump in pay between 90 and a hundred percent. Oh yeah. So I was sitting, my original percentage was at 80, which was good uh, in terms of having, they've identified my stuff. I'm getting paid for it. Thankful for that. But it was unusual because I'm back in the reserves again. Hey, you've got a VA disability rating of 80%. Where are we going to send you on AT? I couldn't be mobilized anyplace outside of CONUS or anything like that because of the health issues. So I ended up, uh, the missus caught orders again. We ended up in Hawaii, which is a beautiful duty station. The NASC out there is fucking incredible. Had some good times there. And then uh, got assigned out to Naval Medical uh, Hospital, uh, San Diego. So I was actually flying out to Guam as part of my duties and flying to California and stuff. So I would actually get like California vacations on my drill weekends. And I was able to go out to Guam a couple of times on the reserve dime. That's nice. So I take it at some point during that time, you pick up senior chief. Picked up senior chief. Uh, shit. 2000. I'd like to say two, it was at Bethesda uh, when I was uh, there working. So that was under uh, Lori Cangelosi. Um, great master chief. Love her to death. And then uh, I was able to pin on the, the star there with uh, another chief as well, uh, Matthias. Okay, nice. So what was it the health issues that became the ultimate deciding factor for you to uh, say goodbye? Well, no, I, I thought I could push through. Uh, so we, I'm running out of time because I was running up against the higher tenure stuff. And... Um, the mass chief that I had there wanted me to lose weight before I would turn out for the senior enlisted academy. Oh, okay. And um, before that, I came in all cocky and stuff, and I failed the PFT uh, for the weigh-in. And it was like a half inch for the tape, so I, I went fucking nuts. I didn't handle it well. So I got my shit together, and then failing a PFT weigh-in at that time your career is pretty much over. Yeah, as, as a as an E eight and having that happen, but I was able to lose the weight. I went to the Senior List Academy in Rhode Island as well. Did the course, which is an incredible course. Was very nervous when they were doing the tape ends. What what year did you do the SEA? Uh two thousand fourteen. Okay, I don't think Rich was there. Um, do you remember who the CMC was? I can't recall at this time because one of the guys who i did the warrior games with in 2018 he was the uh cmc for the sea uh, had got a brain tumor oh, that's what got him into the program another guy i'm trying to get on the show but uh why am i drawing a blank on his last name he may have been there when you were there or probably turned over right after because i think he'd done three years there when he was with the team Okay. So, um, so let's talk about leaving. How was, how was it 
for you to make that choice? Oh, it's kind of, Hey, you, uh, I didn't make it. I didn't get picked up. And then I would just ran out of, um, time and the, the pisser, I could have stayed on and drilled for points and continued to have drilled for points. Nobody would have had any issues with that except for me. I don't like going ahead and retirement points are great, but it's not going to make that big of a dent in your terms of your, um, your final paycheck from the reserves and stuff. Yeah, definitely. And, and I don't like the idea of giving up your weekend for free because there's no guarantee that I'm going to, I'm lucky uh, because of the fact I was on active duty orders for four and a half years, my retirement date is going to get slid over to the left. So I should be able to pick up when I'm 55 and a half. Oh, okay. Okay. The so retirement check. That's right. Cause reservists don't get paid till 60, 60. And there's no guarantee I'm going to make it to 60. There's no guarantee I'm going to make it to 55 and a half. <laughs> so I didn't see working for free. And then it just didn't make any sense to me. Now the command I was, I was with, I was up at uh, Waco, Texas to Knox there. Fantastic group of folks really enjoyed being with EMF Dallas. It's my last command and stuff. I didn't realize Waco had a, a NOS. They do. Uh, it's a small one. And then what was great about that was the EXO of the NOSC in San Antonio became the CO of the NOSC in Waco. Which EXO? Uh, the one that lifted the weights. I can't remember his name right now. Uh, black guy or white guy? White guy. Oh, Sokum. Sokum, that's him, yeah. Yeah, Brad. Sokum, the- Sokum retired in Waco when I was there. He was the last XO of that, of NAS San Antonio that I did not want to punch in the throat. Oh, no, yeah, Sokum was, he's good people. Yeah. Um, Gomper, geez. I, so I don't know if you remember Dana Gilbert. She was a YN over at the reserves, at the NAS in San Antonio for a while. Mm-hmm. We were talking about uh, Silcom's boss and could not remember his name. And it just hit me. Gomper. Commander Gomper. Kind of looked like a guppy. Uh, old surface warfare guy. I, I remember Gomper. Yeah. Uh, really like kind hearted guy. Not someone that you would think of as a hardcore surface warfare guy. But anyway, so you retire and how's dad life been? Uh, well, I, I never got away from dad life in terms of um, we were, I had the craziest military career one could ever have because of the fact that I got to see it as a guy on the ground. I got to see it as a dependent. And I got to see it on the back end with through you guys and the paperwork and administrative bullshit that surrounded you guys throughout your recovery process or transition process or whatever you're going through. So I got to see the Navy from three different angles at the same time, but still being with my family for the mo- for about 95% of it. So I, I blessed in terms of my career, my wife, when I met her, um, she was in college and she was an ROTC and she invited me out to her um, military ball 
And it was the worst date I've ever went on in my entire life. <laughs> Hands down. So were you, you were still drilling at that point in time, right? I would, I was, I showed up to her ball because I wanted someplace to wear the Marine Corps reg uniform. And I had my three rows that I got, three or four rows I got from Desert Shield, Desert Storm. And the minute I got in there, she didn't wear a uniform. Then we've always had, if I go to a function, she never wears her uniform. If it's my function and vice versa type stuff. So show up there and I'm surrounded by army officers all decked out in fucking gold and 22, 23 year old kids. They got like stacks of ribbons up to here, but they're like academic ribbons for ROTC. And I just, I'm still fucked up. I came back from Desert Shield, Desert Storm. And my brain's having trouble. Oh shit, I'm surrounded by officers. I'm just a <laughs> shitty five. So of course the smart ass comes out. I, I was a total dick. It was probably her worst date that she's ever been on in her entire life too. For whatever reason, she saw past that. We're still together after all these years. And then she's been to Bosnia she went to Iraq and then she went to Afghanistan as well. Is she still in right now or did she finally she's, return? She's still in. Um, she picked up a uh, position where she's working for, they're, they're basically looking, uh, this is a big thing when I was in as well, was they were trying to merge first the enlisted ranks in terms of making all the medics or corpsmen plug and play where corpsmen could go serve with the Air Force, Marines, or Navy, whatever setting they need to. Now they wanted to do that with the nurse corps. Oh, you're talking DHA. Yeah, so she's part of DHA now with the transition, but everything because of COVID is fucking thrown out the window because they're not sure what to do or what, how to move forward with the program and stuff. Well, uh, hopefully the nurses can do it better than the enlisted corpsmen and medics because that blew up real quick they yeah um the army bailed immediately they got free shit and went okay we're leaving then we finally had to break with the air force three four years ago okay yeah it got so bad that like uh from doing stuff with the, the mess on the uh active duty side hearing stories where and even from friends out in the fleet were saying the corpsmen that we were getting during the merge with the Air Force had to just basically be reschooled from the day they showed up to their first command. So hopefully it gets better for the officers. They're smarter. They're, they're supposed to be. <laughs> they pretend to be. They get paid to be. But um, speaking of COVID, so how have you guys been dealing with the whole, I, I've been following COVID closely and I think we're on like day 354 of 14 uh, days to slow got the spread. I caught it and I got lucky. Um, my daughter started out at Texas AM. And Wait, she your a, kids are in college? Yeah, that's, they've grown, dude. Damn. So my oldest uh, is a freshman uh, at Texas AM. And she was there for a few weeks and then um, came home. She, we kind of let her go over to a friend's house and she's at a friend's house and her friend's uncle who was there caught COVID two days later. So mm. we thought she might've been exposed. So took her over to Samsey 
and we actually got tested in the garage. I coughed. I wasn't expected to get tested, but I coughed while I was in the car. And the nurse is like, well, you're going to get tested too because you coughed. And son of a bitch, I got it. <laughs> so I think my daughter had it, but she was asymptomatic. I'm surprised you're, well, your wife hasn't been seeing patients, has she? Uh, she's just started to. So um, they were asking for volunteers to come back into the SAMSI uh, that are ICU nurses. And she's gone back sporadically uh, a couple times a week to work over work the floor. Okay. But I mean, prior, like last year, she wasn't seeing patients. Oh, uh, no. Her DHA jobs is paperwork, pushing papers and stuff. And oh, Okay. Because I was thinking, I'm surprised she hadn't been exposed or you guys hadn't seen it come through the house earlier. No, it's none of that. And then uh, she's been, like last week, she got to go to Samson for a couple of days. Uh, she still hasn't gotten the shot or one of the shots is out there, believe it or not. That's so crazy. Um, I've, I've heard other stories that there, there's, I, I don't know, the, the, the vaccine thing is kind of weird to me. It, it is to me too. And the, the thing I don't like about it is when I had it, there's so much damn misinformation about it. Yeah. So my wife isolated me in my son's room, basically, for about uh, three weeks. And the VA has given me, I got some attention from the VA before, but the minute they found out I got Corona, I got a whole lot of attention from the VA. And so, oh, really? Uh, yeah. What do you need? What do you need? What do you need? What do you need? Type thing. And following up with doctors, I'm like one of the uh, post-Corona people they're following and stuff. Oh, okay. So how was your, how was your case? Were you? It was a lot of body pain. Uh, trouble breathing. And I was very lucky. I wasn't hospitalized or anything like that. Did you, I mean, I, so I have this weird theory on hospitalization sometimes when it comes to the, uh, COVID that there's a lot of fear going on out there. And I think some people are much like a lot of people use ERs as their general practice, um, facilities. There's a lot of people who would hear the word COVID and freak out. And yeah, that was the case when I, I had a follow up. I had gotten sick a second time. So I was clear. It was uh, about two months out and my daughter came home again. One of her friends had gotten exposed over the campus and she was in proximity. So she was told that she needed to isolate. And that weekend she came home, she started like, crazy vomiting like flu type stuff so and then my wife got sick as well so we thought we got exposed to it so then i was told to go into the emergency room because i was only two months out and they thought i might have recaught it and stuff like a long hauler or something yeah and then uh they were like they're checking me out and everything was cool oh shit you had corona oh and then it was kind of like put you in a room by yourself type thing and got a lot more attention and stuff too. But I was clear. It just turned out it was like a real nasty case of food poisoning or the flu or something that they, they went through and stuff. So uh, that sucks, but that's better than. That, yeah. Yeah. But then I, I would to. take that over anything. Yeah. And then ironically, my in-laws caught it. My brother-in-law, my sister-in-law, uh, my father-in-law and my mother-in-law all up in Chicago caught it. And they, my, uh, father-in-law and mother-in-law needed to be hospitalized. Oh, wow. Oh, 
Damn. Well, I'm glad it sounds like they're okay now. Everybody's good to go, which is cool. Good, good. Well, man, thank you for coming on. This has like been really informative. I, I'm glad to see that you're doing well too. It's been a long time since we've actually had a long conversation. Thanks, Tommy. I appreciate the opportunity, man. I'll. No worries. Um, and maybe we'll do this again in person at some future. I don't know. We'll ask Fauci when we're allowed to get together. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Uh, yep. I'm going to stop the recording. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope you can follow us on social. Check us out at our website, modernronin.com, on Instagram, The Modern Ronin, on Twitter, at TommyChase01. And you can always support us at modernronin.locals.com. This is our locals group, and it would be great if you guys joined and subscribed. Some great benefits. Talk to you guys soon.